0: Hey, so today on the podcast, we've got Tom Schaff of Major League Sales. Uh, really excited to talk to him about uh, some ideas he has for corporate growth and some uh, some things that we all avoid in doing that, uh, mostly whale hunting. So here we go. Let's uh, jump in. All right. Tommy Schaff, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being a part of it today.
1: Good to have it. Good to be here.
0: So you and I were talking about uh, our collective missions to grow uh, businesses and especially help them look at how to exit better. And I know you've got this patent about business growth and it's a part of this uh, blueprint to a billion idea. And I was curious, you know, as you look at some of those things, because I've read that some of them strike you as, you know, not obvious, but everyone knows you should have a value proposition. Everyone knows you should be, you know, kind of following some of these guidelines. But I'm curious for today if we could talk about the things that for whatever crazy reason, you know, like a manufacturing company might avoid something in that blueprint that might be kind of difficult, but has an outsized value. It's a beautiful
1: idea. Um, you know, the thing that I've seen over the last 26 years that continually amazes me is people unwillingness to go after large accounts. The common thought is large accounts take longer. They come at lower margin and people don't, go after them. They, In fact, they stop even um, trying to get them. The growth thesis proven by science is your business lives and dies with big accounts, unless you're like on an internet business. But for a conventional manufacturing business, your big year is the year you won John Deere. The big year is when you did something, you won an airport project, you sold a, a construction project to uh, you know, you you sold a football stadium. There was the year, and then what were your bad years? We didn't sell anything, and we lost a big one. Big ones take forever to replace. Little ones seem to take long to get. So, where do people make the mistake? They don't have a strategy for winning what we would call a marquee account.
0: And do you think that's because a lot of it is the small ones just sort of trickle in? They, they walk through the door, they, they, they ring up the phone and there you are answering the phone and taking orders. And it actually probably takes a little bit of effort and strategy and like doing something disruptive and different to get those bigger accounts.
1: I think that's part of it. I think it, what's bigger is um, sometimes we're wary, especially if you're a smaller company, smaller manufacturing company, somebody big calls you, here's what we've experienced. Why do they call the little company? They call the little company for ideas, creativity, and service. Then why don't they buy? Risk management. You're little. I'm afraid that you might not be able to deliver, and I'll get shot for going. So what do I do? I have the big company I'm going to buy from. I have a cattle call to bring all these people in. And then I have a creative boutique firm that gives me ideas. I string them along. I get their ideas. I show them to the firm on the top. And then I say, can you do this? They go, I guess we could. I'll be like, what do you charge? I go, the little guy isn't going to charge me that much. He's willing to earn my business. Well, what I really was was a stocking horse for the big guy. So small firms oftentimes get burnt by big firms because they do all the work, but they get none of the juice. They don't get the vig. And so that happens to you a couple of times. You say, pull my finger once. But the second time, I know the joke. Yeah. And I think that's why. So they say, you know what? They use you. They abuse you. And instead of getting better, they change their expectation. And then they set to this new area that's called, let's go after small accounts that anyone can go after. And they say, you don't understand. Our product Is commoditized. All they care about is price. Well, all they care about is prices because you're going after people that all they care about is price. You're not going after someone who needs you. And a lot of times on these small accounts, we talk to the wrong person. We talk, you know, we get sent to who you sound like. That's the thing that I always remember. You talk about your product, you get sent to the person that buys that product. But that person, that person gets incented to buy your stuff for less. When you ask the question, why? Why are you interested in talking? Why have you reached out to us? Why always brings us up a level? It brings us up to a strategic level. At that place, when we solve a higher level problem. We usually have a bigger sale. It usually has more margin. It can be longer term and we can build a business around
0: it. And so a change like that's got to come from the top. So if you're the you're the CEO of a, a manufacturer that's been burned by that big client, a uh, big customer, and you said, you know, forget it. We're just going back to, to going after these other deals. What, what kind of, is it a mindset shift? Is it a strategy shift? What, what does it take to break through and actually be successful doing that?
1: An act of God, typically. Um, (laughs) No, it does take, it's a mind shift. It's a mindset, it's a paradigm. And it always needs to come from above. If it comes from a, because here's the reason. Large sales are never won by a salesperson, Michael. Not ever. If this, if I have a $50 million company, $100 million company, and I find a $100 million opportunity, Do you think they're going to believe a salesperson who gets commissions? We can do this. When a large company buys from a small company, I said it before, but I'll repeat it. They do it for creativity and service. What scares them? Are you going to be able to deliver? Will I get fired? Will I get in trouble because you're small? When IBM, back in the day, I started my career at IBM. If you had a big opportunity, it was like you filled up a conference room full of your people. And you'd be like, nobody ever got fired from buying from IBM. Do you feel lucky? Do you, punk? And then two guys in T-shirts came in after us, right? They're like, okay, I'm not going to make a mistake. It's risk mitigation. Um, Large deals by big companies are sold by companies, not by salespeople salespeople's jobs are to find problems not to sell the item their job is to qualify the way i look at it um salespeople the the way i look at large deal hunting salespeople are like handicappers in vegas they are like looking at the teams going which team do i think i have the best chances of winning they calculate their odds and they say I have a chance, they don't have these players, we have these players, it's on mud. You know, there's all these factors. They go, we can win this. I wanna bet my year on this. And so what they do is they go back to the bank. They go to dad, they go to the owner of the company, the president of the company and say, here's our value proposition. Here's the impact of us not being here. This could be huge, but I'm gonna need all these resources. If I see the return, I've shortened the list. We've seen the right people. The president then says, you know what? I'll take my key executives. I'll pull them off of their projects, off of their silos. And we're gonna create a war room. And we're gonna take away their concern that we're too small by showing them more of us. And when we show more of them, uh, we're gonna talk a language that's not about us. In fact, we're gonna do something ridiculous, Mike. The biggest risk that people have, they try to say they're better than everybody at everything and everyone's a prospect. The great ones say, not everyone's our prospect. Not everything we do is unique. In fact, Mike, 90% of what we do is just like everyone else but the 10% that's left, that's the magic. And they use all of their time to talk about what makes them different. Does that make
0: any sense? It's great. It's great. And I think the, you know, the payoff, if we fast forward out to, you know, I got, I hope, uh, you know, anyone listening to us talk about this is excited about that one deal, but then all of a sudden you roll up a few of them and you start to develop an expertise in a niche and that plays into your exit and your valuation, your multiple and now, all of a sudden, we're talking real money.
1: Yeah. So, for example, I, you know, I, I'm not an expert on valuation, but let me, I think they probably look at what's your cash flow? Like, what's your EBITDA? I think probably look at um, how dependent are they on one or two accounts, or do you have a bunch of accounts? So, if I have a bunch of accounts, creating a bunch of cash flow, I'm doing pretty well. Well, if I buy this, do you have a sustainable and repeatable process? Do you have some point of magic? Do you have some uniqueness that sticks out? that's pretty light, you know, compared to everybody else. And then um, the last one is who's the leadership team? Like, are you bringing a team that will hold this together or what's gonna happen when it leaves? That IP, when you go after big accounts, they have different needs. And usually we have to stretch our abilities to meet those needs. But the second that happens, our IP changes. And when we solve that problem, the ability to win another one after that goes up because nobody else has done it. And then all of a sudden, we got two or three big ones. We don't even want to look at anything else anymore. I think that's big deals. Once you've actually went out and hunted for big deals and liked it, you'll never want to look at a little deal again. It'd be like, we worked that hard. Have you, ever, you have kids, Mike, right? Sure, sure. You ever go fishing for sunnies?
0: No, but I, I, I know what you're getting at.
1: You go down to the local pond, you throw in a rod, and about every eight seconds you can pull out a fish that's yeah. this big. But and there's if, no meat on
0: it. You can't eat it. You can't do anything with it.
1: You take So you, you have 72 of these things.
0: <laughs> right.
1: And you clean them out, and there are two fish McNuggets left yeah. to eat. But you spent two hours and got crap all over your hands. That's what selling little deals are like.
0: Yeah, and we all we all can relate to that. You know, there there's you know I, I've heard, I've had conversations with people where we talk about how there's almost the same amount of work and friction that goes into any deal. So they might as well be big because you're still doing just as much service. Just as I mean, because you don't want to serve everyone the same. Um, there's you know there's a lot of work that goes into every deal.
1: When you do little deals, it's usually going to have some commoditization to it. So you're not investing in it. So you're not doing anything to build a motor on your sale, but large deals, you usually have to ante up the bigger, the deal you have to ante up too. It's like, Hey, we can help you. We're going to have to do some things for us to do some things. You're going to have to do some things. But if we do this together, we could be a marriage that lasts for a while. What do you say? We get a cottage, a house and have a couple kids. Like, Once you kind of get married in contractual obligations and we invest in some people and we do some things, change our science, make something to solve a specific issue for this thing, we start seeing a lot of applications. Other people in the market start seeing it. But that doesn't happen on small deals. On small deals, you look like everyone else. And in a world that's quickly going to Amazon, I don't care what you sell, unless you're creating solutions to big things, you're going to get Amazon.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Hey, so uh, in full disclosure, you've helped me move the needle on my business. For those that uh, that don't know you, what's the way, given the conversation we just had, what's the way that you typically plug into businesses to to move the needle on on value that we've just talked about?
1: Um, How do we get together or how do we make a difference?
0: How do you make a difference?
1: That's a great question. Well, the first thing is to find out if you should. You got to count the costs. You know, there's three investments anytime, Mike. It's time, money, and change. But the hardest one, everyone talks about the money, and that's so easy. You spend money, that's easy. Changing is the hard one. We've seen time and time again, people go, I don't know if I want to do it. It's so expensive. No, if it works and there's a return, it's never expensive. That's an investment. Time, time in COVID, hard. But spending the time and the money to get the change, I don't know. I think you showed me the research from Gartner. Uh, In all the technology projects that Gartner studied, how many of them actually got a return of their investment?
0: Like 25%. It's tiny.
1: So 75% of all technology never returned their investment, much less get a return of their investment. Well, there's two things there. One is, should the project even have happened? And second is, did they invest enough? Did they get alignment? Projects are sent to people and said, you fix this, but it's not a strategic initiative of the company. So what do we do? The first thing we do is look and say, is growth a strategic imperative? Do you have a reason to grow? Do you have capacity? Some people have operations issues. And they wanna grow. We need more sales. We've lost customers. We have operational issues. Bring. I'll be like, that isn't what I'd fix. Yeah. If you have operation issues, we're gonna kill your reputation. How about due diligence? Operations that are fine. When you fix your operations, you have something that's sellable. Fix your ops first. And then when you have capacity and can deliver and honor your promises, then you ought to take a look at sales. When you have capacity, you have warehouses, you have lines, you have a second or third shift that are available. When there's opportunity with sales to fill it up and you don't have a lot more fixed cost, well, a sales initiative is free. So what we usually do is say, does, is there an economics that makes sense? Do you have a strategic event that you're preparing for? Is there an income? Why are you doing this? If that all's aligned, the next thing we do is um, we usually do an audit. What do we have to sell? How are we selling it? Where are we spending all of our time? The third thing, and you've hit on it, is kind of this executive alignment, this buy-in. The third thing is the hardest part convincing somebody we should hunt on less opportunities let's go after less opportunities better let's fight less wars mike you got those two boys you ever play um you ever play risk with blaze and rocco
0: boy it's been a while but yes
1: when I was a kid through college and especially before that, we'd play risk, you know, get together and you got the, all the continents with all the countries. The guy who has people on every continent and fights on every continent is the first guy to go home. Yeah. He says, this isn't any fun. But the person who takes over South America or maybe Australia yeah. and builds a fence around it and stacks up their armies and then annexes fight less wars because it's easier to protect than it is to attack absolutely if you're attacking 35 places are you really attacking or are you shooting bb's at the metal man
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, so that cultural thing is to say we're not right for everyone but we're going to be magnificent for somebody to get clear on who that somebody is and to say, we no longer are going to beg through procurement. We're going to say hell no to RFPs and we're going to call high. We're going to talk and find problems, not solve them. We're going to find problems that cost something to somebody that they're sick of it. And we're going to double down our resources yeah. and bring all the smart people in to win those that's typically what we do
0: that's great and i uh, i feel like uh, when i when i post this video i'm going to put a hashtag hell no to rfps that's when i think people could rally behind
1: you know my my best buddy tom searcy i do a lot of work i think he his book is something like um say no to rfps or just say yeah. no to rfps something like that uh
0: yeah, they're, they're disastrous for everybody because that's, by definition, someone's looking for a price for, you know, a ton of steel as opposed to some kind of value.
1: Well, here's what happens in most RFPs. This is other research, probably from Gartner, but 20% of all RFPs, let's say you win about 20. You are going to win those anyhow. Mm-hmm. 30% of them, somebody else wins. They were going to win them anyhow. They're the incumbents. In both cases, we wrote the RFP. We did it for governance. And we just did it as an execution. And part of it is to keep the guy who's going to win the business honest. But here's the weird thing I've seen in RFPs. Half of the RFPs, they don't do anything. Yeah. What do they do? They shop for ideas You jump up and down, dance, monkey boy, dance, and you get nothing. You spend a fortune chasing people. Mm. Now, it's interesting. You don't have to do RFPs. Now, if you're going to win them, fill them out. But if you're not going to win them, now, some of you might be, you don't understand. I sell to the government. Well, here's what I'll tell you. In the government, there's somebody who talks to the executives without doing the RFP, who got there before you. Even the government, people get to talk, no matter what the bidding is. If the project is big enough, somebody gets to somebody. And if you're not, you're the person that is there to bring the price down.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, Tom, this has been brilliant. I thank you for uh, those insights and stories. Um, thanks for being a part of the podcast today.
1: Well, it's good to be here.
0: Hey there, thanks for watching. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to hit that like button and subscribe to your more content just like that.